Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. Today we're talking about leadership. Who are F1's big leaders, both past and present, and what can we learn from them? What makes a good leader? And perhaps where we learn the most, what stops a leader being effective? I've learned a lot about this in my time in the sport, and today I'm sharing it with you. Welcome to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello everybody, welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Thank you so much again. I know I say it every week, but I genuinely mean it. Thank you for coming back and listening to another one. And also thank you for taking the time, those people that have sent me messages this week. I've had some amazing ones. I'll try and read one or two out at the very end of this podcast, but thank you. I appreciate everyone. I read everyone and I respond to every single one as well. So please do keep those coming. It genuinely means the world to me. Uh, big thank you as ever to Omelagato Watches, um, sponsor, partner on this journey for Pit Lane Life Lessons. They couldn't be a better fit. They posted an image this week on their social media channels, which is a beautiful image, which all of their pictures are. They do some great photographic work around the watches they sell. But this one was just a beautiful image of one of their watches in real close up, almost macro level. And the caption just said, details matter. And for that very reason, that is why they are the perfect fit for this podcast, because of course details matter. It's one of the absolute core subjects that we talk about. So thank you to Omelagato. Uh, please do go check them out. I will link all of their social channels as well as their website in the description. Go and have a look. I think you'll be impressed with what you find there. Um, okay, let's get into today then. We're going to talk about leadership and leadership is a it's quite a big subject. It's a subject that Personally, I've learned a lot about both through leaders that I have worked under, that I've learned from, uh, and through my time as a leader as well on a personal level. The experiences that I've had have taught me so much, both good and bad. F1 is full of amazing leaders, but it's also full and has been full over the years of some pretty terrible leaders. And I'm going to be pretty honest about that today. I'm going to tell you where those failings came from, why they came and what effect they have on the people around them, how we can learn from it to try and be better leaders ourselves. Also perhaps to, to, to learn from it to, even if we're not a leader in a leadership role in an organisation or we think we're not in a leadership role in our life, I'm going to try and convince you today that you absolutely are. It doesn't have to say that you're a leader in your job title for you to display leadership qualities and for that to benefit you and those people around you. Um, leadership is a, a weird thing that we, we kind of don't teach. We don't teach anybody leadership at school uh, in, young, in the young stages of life. In fact, we almost teach the opposite of that. The leadership style that we are exposed to as kids comes obviously from our parents and it comes from our school teachers. It might come from a sports coach in a football team that you're in, in, a, in a, as a youngster. If you think about those leadership roles and the lessons we were taught back then when we were all kids, and this is still happening now, by the way, these haven't really changed much over time. We were taught 
by those people in authority to do as I say, otherwise you will be in trouble. I want you to do this. If you don't do this, you will be punished. That was the way that our leaders, the people we looked up to, imparted their knowledge on us. It was a dictatorship. It was simply somebody telling us that if we don't follow those rules, if we don't do exactly what we're told, we will somehow be punished for that. It will have a negative impact on our lives. So if you expand that further and those people that have come up through that system, with that being their only education around leadership, it is little wonder that when those people grow up and they start running businesses or they start running families uh, or they start being a central part of someone else's business, that if they operate in that same way, they're never going to get the best out of their people. If you go into a company today and you run your organisation on the basis of, right, this is what I say, you do this, otherwise you're in trouble, you are not going to be getting the best out of your people. You are not maximising the potential of your business. In fact, far from it. In fact, what you're doing is squashing your business down into one or two people who might just be happy to follow those rules. But for everybody else, they are they're not getting the best out of the people. You're not maximising what you're capable of as an organisation because your biggest asset, the people that work for you, are not inspired to do more. They're not inspired to go above and beyond. They're not inspired to give their all or to give their best. And if you're not getting the best out of your people, your company is absolutely not performing at the highest level that it can. So first of all, the education system has to change. We have to think differently about the way we teach people in life to become good leaders. And we can do that in a number of ways. If you go back to the schooling system, it's very easy. It's starting to happen, but it's very easy to start encouraging more leadership opportunities in the school setting, for example. You can put responsibility back onto children rather than just give them a task and say, this is what I want you to do. Come back to me when you've done it. You can throw that open to the, the children, to the people, to the pupils and say, right, I want you guys to come up with a solution to this particular challenge. I want you guys to lead this lesson, to discuss amongst yourselves, come up with a collective answer and then put that forward to the group, to a, a wider group. Take responsibility for the direction that this particular lesson goes. Take responsibility for certain outcomes that might, might be at the end of a particular run of, of lessons or challenges or tasks. These are all things that are very simple that we don't do enough of and yet could do so much more. We can share the responsibility around a group of youngsters, whether it's our own children or kids at school. We can take it in turns in leading a class, in leading a challenge. Not everybody wants to be a leader. Not everybody finds it easy to be a leader, but it's something that we can develop in people. Like anything else, we can teach it. And still we'll come out at the end of that process with some great leaders and some who are less comfortable at leading. More happy to sit back and take leadership rather than give it out. But at least if we've trained them for that, they still have some of those leadership qualities, even if not all. If I think to my, about my Formula One time, particularly when I first got into the sport, you know, I was at McLaren through the entire decade of the 2000s. I joined in 2000, I left the team in 2009. 
during that period we went through not just at McLaren but through it as an industry and probably even just in the wider world some huge changes about how we understood business culture, sports culture, team culture to have evolved. I've spoken many times in this podcast about how McLaren in some degrees really led that process of change as that, that the ideas around cultural thinking were changing. The idea of how to get the best out of a team of people was transformed between the 80s, the 90s, even the very beginnings of the 2000s when I joined the team and then by 2009 when I left we were on the brink of a whole new world of high performance culture within a team and it's the same in business. People began to understand that your biggest asset, as I said, is the people that work for you. It's not the cars in a Formula One team. It's not the, the technology. It's not the autoclave or the simulator or the wind tunnel. It's the people. The hundreds and hundreds of people that are working for that Formula One team are its biggest asset. And for many years, to a large extent, we'd ignored those people. We'd ignored that asset. Because all we'd ask those people to do is come into work, clock in in the morning, do a job that we'd ask them to do, the job that was very specifically detailed in their job description, and then they'd clock out and go home again. In that scenario, you're getting a tiny percentage out of those people, uh, of the potential of those people. A tiny part of what they could offer that team, you're just extracting a tiny bit. And the point was, I use the word extracting very deliberately there because rather than those people being so invested in the process and in the project, you're having to extract the work from them. You're having to extract what value you think you can get in that tiny little section rather than in today's world where high performance culture is all about empowering those individuals, giving them a, a shared sense of purpose a shared cause that they're fighting for. And in that scenario, when people feel proud to pull on the team shirt, which is something we absolutely developed at McLaren, they come in and offer more than their job title says. You don't have to any longer just extract what you can between the hours of nine to five or whatever it is. You give these people a challenge, they take that challenge on, they offer the wealth of their experience and their knowledge and you as an organisation benefit wholly from the entire collection of those hundreds of people buying into the shared vision, the shared fight, the shared dream of winning something, of being the best that you can be as a team, fighting together. That all comes from strong leadership. In fact, that can't come without strong leadership because those hundreds of people are looking to the leaders in that organisation for inspiration, for drive, to know what that shared purpose is. And that leadership, those leadership qualities that can lead an entire army of people all down the same path, all in the same direction towards a common goal, well, that simply wasn't there when I first entered the sport. Because back then, the common thinking around the world, not just in Formula One, was that there was one person in charge and that person in charge had all the power and you better do what he says or she says, otherwise you'll be in trouble. Otherwise you risk some kind of kickback on that. You risk penalty. 
because you haven't done what, the, what your leader has told you to do. And that's how life was when I got into McLaren. The people that were leading the McLaren team when I came in had some excellent leadership qualities and some terrible leadership qualities. And the problem with that is that in some areas they can be brilliant and in other areas they undo all the great work that those brilliant qualities might have formed. The leaders that I'm talking about, the people that I worked underneath, who were so old school, they were a million miles away from this new world that was coming over the horizon about cultural thinking within a team or within an organisation. They were very much dictatorial in that they ruled with an iron fist. They were terrifying when you walk into a place like that because people are scared of doing something wrong because it might upset this fearless or fearful rather fearful leader. On the flip side, the leaders that are the same leaders that I'm talking about that had those qualities or those character traits that I saw as being a negative at the time, those same leaders also led by example when it came to things like work ethic. They worked hard, really hard. They didn't let anything get in their way. They were fearless. They were determined to achieve what we wanted to achieve and we would do whatever it took to achieve it. But that's a great quality. That also fed down into the organisation and that because those leaders were leading by example in that sense, everybody else could see what was happening and bought into that. If the leader's going to do it, then I'm happy to go to those extra lengths as well. The problem with leadership is that the perfect leader, the perfect leader probably doesn't exist, but the optimal situation to be in is to have a leader where you have all of those qualities. You don't have the negatives because the positives can be so powerful but can be undone in a moment by the negative qualities that they might display. Destroying any trust that you might have, destroying this idea that you're all buying into the same culture, that you're all fighting for and with each other, with your leader right at the very front of that. This idea of fear of failure that I've spoken about on a previous episode, that will come if you've got a leader like that who demands nothing but perfection every time and punishes imperfection. That's not a culture that we know today can build into a long-term success. So the leadership styles back then were totally different, but the point that I'm trying to make in this podcast is that times have changed. Just like fashion, just like style, just like thinking changes over time, so does the thinking around leadership. And if those people that were leading the team when I got into Formula One back in the early 2000s, if people like that are so old school that they just can't find a way to change, they can't change their own mindset to this new way of thinking. And this is kind of what happened. Those people who would look at these new ideas that McLaren were pioneering around cultural change, around building this high performance team, looking down into the minute details of the individual people, trying to practice things like empathy and thoughtfulness and having a caring attitude towards the staff that you were asking so much of. If those old school people looked at that and thought, well, this is absolute nonsense. This is being way too soft. 
we're a tough team. If we're going to win, we've got to be tougher than the opposition. Because that's exactly the attitude they had. Of course we've got to be tough. Of course we've got to be tougher than the opposition. But if you're not practicing things like empathy and not having a caring attitude, those staff that you're asking to be tough won't be tough forever. They won't be tough for you as a leader. And so what happened was the team changed, the culture changed, the ideas around teamwork and uh, and high performance thinking at McLaren changed over time. But those leaders that were in place simply couldn't change. And therefore things broke apart. Things didn't work. The team fell out of love with the leadership. They fell out of love with each other. The team didn't pull together and absolutely we weren't getting the best out of each other as a team. And it took some pretty big, pretty serious interventions. And I've spoken about being part of those interventions before to to start to really recognise that that was some of our failings. An old school leadership attitude wasn't fit for the purpose of this changing world that we would have found ourselves in the midst of the 2000s. And all of that attitude, of course, comes back to the fact that we don't teach leadership. We don't teach people how to become good leaders. Formula One is absolutely guilty of this, particularly as time uh, in, in days gone by. But I think the wider world is as guilty of this, if not more. In fact, I know from talking to organisations on many levels all around the planet that people in organisations get promoted into leadership roles more often than not because of length of service, because they've been there a long time, rather than because they've displayed excellent leadership qualities. And I can absolutely relate to that in Formula One terms, and I'm sure that many of you can relate to that too. The people that became leaders when I was in the sport, when I got into Formula One in the early 2000s, the people that were leading the team, the people I've just discussed, talked about, that couldn't manage to change their attitude. Those people had become leaders because they had moved up through the ranks within the team over many years. They'd been there a long time. Gradually, because they were good at their job, they got promoted. One of them had been, in fact, both of them had been mechanics back in the day. Because they've been good mechanics, they got promoted up to be maybe a number one mechanic. And then they got promoted to be a chief mechanic and after that they get promoted up to be team manager. Not necessarily because they showed the leadership qualities that would make a great team manager, but because they had been good at their previous jobs. And this is one of the big problems in the world when it comes to leadership. We don't train for it. We train people... Let's take Formula One as an example, but you can relate this to any business around the world because, or any industry rather, because this is such a frequent occurrence. We train people to be a race mechanic in Formula One. We come up through the ranks as I did, you work your way up the, the motor racing ladder and eventually you aspire to get into Formula One. You get there because you've been good at your job all the way up, been a great race mechanic in Formula Three or in Formula Two. Because you've been a great race mechanic, you get the great references, you get promoted, you get moved on up through the ladder, cream rises to the top, and eventually you break into Formula One because you're a great race mechanic. And then once you're inside that Formula One team, you might get promoted from the test team, as I did, to the race team because I was a good race mechanic. And then after that, you start 
you move up to become a, a number one mechanic. You're in charge of the other mechanics, as I did. All of a sudden, you're in a leadership role. You're leading a team of people. And yet nothing on the way, all the way on that journey to get there, nothing has taught you to do that other than the people that you've worked underneath, which could have been good or bad. Nothing about the fact that you're a great race mechanic necessarily translates into being a good leader of other great race mechanics. Because what happens is you go all of a sudden, and this happens overnight, you go from being responsible for a racing car or for your bit of a racing car, for building that car, for operating it, for maintaining it over a race weekend. You go from those responsibilities then to being responsible for the people who are responsible for the racing car. And this happens in all kind of leadership roles because then you move up, you become a team manager, for example. You're no longer even working on the car. The skills that got you to that position in life, that have got you to that promoted role, that elevated position in your organisation, are absolutely no longer relevant to your daily routines. You're no longer putting racing cars together, operating cars. You're no longer using the tools that you used to get you up that, to, up to that, that position within the organisation. Now your responsibility falls for the people who use the tools to operate the car, to, to do whatever the job is. Your responsibility now is to manage people. It's to look after people. Something that perhaps you've never had to do in your entire career. And as a company, companies around the world do this badly. They send people on a training day or a training week. Management training, leadership training. We're going to give you this promotion. You're going to be a leader now in this organisation. So we're going to send you on a training weekend or a training week. So pack your bags. You're going away to a nice fancy hotel in the country with a couple of other potential leaders. And we're going to go through three or four days where you're going to sit in a room inside that hotel. Someone's going to bore you to death with a flip chart. And at the other end of it, you'll be a leader. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. That's not how leadership works. Leadership is something that is grown over a long period of time. Leadership is a set of skills that are developed gradually, piece by piece. The great leaders are the leaders that have been leaders for a long, long time, and they don't really become great leaders in the most part until way down the line, because they've had to learn all of those skills. They've had to learn all of those character traits that make a great leader in exactly the same way that I only became a Formula One mechanic after years and years and years of practicing my trade, of learning the skills I needed to become a race mechanic, a Formula One mechanic. That didn't happen overnight. You couldn't have dropped me in a Formula One team and I'd have been good enough. You couldn't have dropped me in, the, in a Formula One team and overnight I'd have been a great F1 mechanic. I had to build to that point. And yet we ask people to become leaders overnight because they've been great at whatever their previous job was up until that point which might be completely unrelated to their new the new requirements of their new leadership role and the way we operate like this on such a global scale means that companies organizations everywhere are populated with inferior leaders leaders who simply don't have the skills simply aren't equipped 
to do their job because they've never done it before. And this is, like I said, with the, the thing going back to schools, about introducing elements of leadership training in the classroom. This is where we can begin to change all this. Inside an organisation, we can give leadership training, not just to those people who have been promoted into a leadership role, but to everybody. We can encourage leadership from all aspects of every organisation, and that's absolutely what we should do. Leaders are terrified of that. Leaders in a group are scared of giving other people around them, the people below them in the, the, the organisational tree, they're terrified of giving them leadership skills because they think they're going to be better than they are. They're going to outperform them. That maybe one day they'll take their job. Because those leaders don't necessarily have the self-confidence in their own abilities, in their own role, because they've never had training to get to that point. This is a long game. If you're in a Formula One team, you know, the very short term goals are to win the Grand Prix, to win a world championship. But they are short term goals because a Formula One team has to operate like any other business and have longer term goals. I mean, infinite goals, goals that never end, which are to produce an organisation that can sustain success, an organisation that has a great high performance culture in it where, as I said before, the people working for that organisation buy into the common goal, the shared cause that you're all fighting for. They 100% believe in that cause. They're willing to go above and beyond whatever it is their job title says that they should be doing each day because they believe so much and they feel like they've got something to offer. They also feel that the company is willing to take what they're going to offer, even if it falls outside of their job description. That's how you build an infinitely successful structure. People in that type of organisation enjoy their job. They don't want to leave. They won't disappear to someone else just because they're offering a bit more money. Because they will fight for the people around them. They will go to war in a perfectly structured organisation. They will go to war for the people who are around them. It's about building a team that's willing to fight for each other. And that all, all stems from the leadership. The leadership is key to that, both in terms of making it work. Not an easy challenge, but something that can only work if the leadership gets it right. 100% that will not work if the leadership is wrong. If the leadership's right, you might get to this infinite level of success. You might get to this shared dream, this culture within your organisation that can sustain success. You might. It's not easy. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. But without that strong strong leadership, you, you can guarantee that you will not get, get there. Leadership is everything when in, in terms of bringing a team together and fighting for something together. Getting the best out of people is what leadership is all about. It's no longer about being good at your job. It's no longer about being good at the hands-on, the tools, the whatever it was that got you to that position. And in fact, what you have to do is be strong enough to let that go. You have to be strong enough to trust the people that are now doing the job that you maybe used to do, that you were good at doing. You have to trust those people that they can also do that job incredibly well. 
Your job is to enable those people to do their job, to give them the tools, the infrastructure, the support that they need to get the best out of them. When you were doing that job, what did you wish you had from your leaders that maybe you didn't get? Well, now is your opportunity to offer those services, those support networks. It's practicing things like empathy. It's giving support. It's not looking to steal the limelight when somebody does something well. You go, this is also one of the toughest things about leadership, is that when you're doing the role that you've done all throughout your career, when I'm a race mechanic, for example, if my car goes through qualifying, gets pole position, or we win a race, the feeling's incredible because I'm central to that car doing well. I'm one of the key personnel that has enabled that car and driver to succeed that weekend. You know, I'm leaping around the garage overjoyed. The whole garage is coming over. They're patting me on the, on the back with my colleagues. We're high-fiving each other. People are saying congratulations to me because I am central to the success that that car has had. When I become a leader in that garage, I'm no longer claiming the accolades in the same way for that success. Of course, I'm a part of it. Of course, I've enabled those people to do their jobs properly. But I have to let go of that feeling, that central feeling of high-fiving and leaping around the garage because that's no longer my role anymore. I'm empowering those people that are now in that role to do their job. I have to let go of taking the short-term accolades in favour of building something much more long-term, much more sustainable at a higher level. The ego bit has to go. You have to let go of any egotistical, egotistical feelings that you may have harboured from those earlier days. And that's not easy for everybody. It's a real challenge to get leadership right, but one of the keys to all of that working is building from the ground up within your organisation. Training people no matter what their role. Looking out for the key traits of leadership in every single employee. No matter who they are. Not just the employees that are on the right path or on the right employment ladder that would naturally lead to a leadership role. It doesn't matter. If somebody's a leader, they could be anywhere in your organisation. And if you don't tap into that, if you don't find those people, then your organisation is not as strong as it could be. Some of the best leaders that I have ever worked with actually haven't had the word leader in their job title. There hasn't been a specific trait in their job, descrip in their job description. They have just emerged as great leaders. There are some amazing drivers that I could recognise as being brilliant leaders. A driver's job title doesn't actually say he's the leader of that team. He's not anybody's boss. But he's a character, a figure that people look up to for leadership. David Coulthard was an incredible leader, an amazing inspirational leader of the team around him. I can think of Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton also today an inspirational leader, but not so much when he first started. Lewis Hamilton was just a kid when he became a Formula One driver. All he had done to get there was be a brilliant driver. Overnight he's transformed into a, an F1 driver. He has been given everything. He's got people around him telling him how amazing he is. He's got a huge amount of money 
coming in. He's driving now one of the best cars on the grid. He's up against Fernando Alonso on the other side of his own garage. His life changes overnight where he goes from being simply a racing driver to having to be a brand ambassador, a uh, public speaker, sometimes an actor for TV adverts and everything else. He's got to be a fashion model for clothing brands and he's got to be a leader. Who knows if a Formula One driver in their first days has the capability or the traits to be a good leader. It's not something typically in the smaller categories you ever have to really employ to the same extent. When Lewis Hamilton stepped into Formula One, his leadership qualities in that first year in 2007 were, I'm going to say, non-existent. And I say that with a huge amount of respect for Lewis Hamilton. Perhaps it was very difficult at that young age to lead an enormous team of very experienced people in a place like McLaren. But the qualities or the traits that Lewis Hamilton showed, and I've written about this to some extent, actually had a negative impact on the team. Same with Fernando Alonso on the other side of that same garage that year. A very different style in terms of his leadership. Actually is a leadership style that ripped the team apart. Between the two of them, it was a disastrous season. And that's at least in part because... The team looked to those two drivers for inspiration and for leadership. They looked up to them as figureheads of the organisation. And yet in 2007, those drivers behaved like petulant children. They fell out with each other to such a public extent that it ripped an enormous divide down the centre of our garage. And undoubtedly, that was one of the things that cost us the championship that year because we couldn't work as a team. We didn't have good leadership. And then you've got to look beyond them, you've got to look at the actual leadership of the team, the Ron Dennis of that organisation. Now, Ron, I have a huge amount of respect for as a leader because Ron had so many great leadership qualities. Rod, Ron led by example when it came to his work ethic, his attention to detail, his laser focus on what we were trying to achieve. He had incredible passion for what we were doing, all brilliant traits. But he also struggled when it came to things like public empathy, showing empathy. Ron was a very empathetic character when you needed him. If somebody was in trouble, you could go to Ron and he would have your back. But he never showed that unless you were the person in trouble. So the rest of the organisation didn't necessarily see it on a daily basis. Ron was also very open to someone coming up with a new idea. And I know this from experience, but I also know that I went to Ron with some ideas and he embraced those. He took them on board, which was amazing from my perspective. But the perception of Ron was that you could not go to Ron with an idea, that Ron was the very last person that you want to go and knock on his door with an idea and expect a welcoming response. He had this image of being really tough, really, uh, you know, hard-nosed character. Not a very personable character, not the sort of person that people within the organisation felt comfortable going to talk to. That's perhaps where Ron was let down in his leadership style. Perhaps that was just a little bit too old school. 
I mean, I know for a fact that Ron tried hard to overcome that. I think Ron recognised that. One year, when I was in my leadership role in the team, Ron came with uh, or asked us to produce a sort of cheat sheet with everybody's photographs in the team. All the mechanics and engineers wanted their photos, little passport style photo with their name underneath so that he could start to learn who everybody was. And when he came to us asking for that information, I thought, that's brilliant, that's, that's amazing. What a great man to have recognised that's something he can improve on. And getting to know Ron and Ron getting to know us can only help. In truth, I don't think it, very, it went very much further than that. We produced these sheets for him. I don't think anybody beyond that day ever got the opportunity to have a proper conversation with Ron. There was never any small talk. There was never any chit chat around the garage. And I think the people in that organisation would have loved that. I was fortunate in my roles, I was able to talk to Ron on a professional level, but also occasionally on a personal level. But by far the majority of the hundreds and hundreds of people working there never ever got to see a side of Ron like that. That's where that leadership quality falls over a little bit because people want to know who it is that's leading them. They want to know a little bit more about that person. They want to know that that leader knows you, knows me. If a leader comes along and says, good morning, I want to know that they've got the, the time to stop and listen to me talk back to them. If they ask me how my day's going, I don't want them to say, how's your day going? And then rush off. I want them to say, how's my day going? And then stop and wait for the answer. To engage, you've asked a question, the very least you can do is wait for that answer. I don't think we ever got that from Ron. So he wasn't perfect. Nobody is perfect, but Ron was brilliant. But in 2007, I guess he let himself down as well because we had this disastrous dynamic unfolding inside the garage where the two drivers were were falling out and the whole team was falling apart, we needed strong leadership to steady that ship. And I'll give Ron, you know, the credit he deserves. He tried his very best in that situation. The one thing he did do was turn the situation around when Spygate unfolded and we'd been hit by this hundred million dollar fine. Ron turned that into a slight on us as an organisation. He turned the organisation together to fight back against the world who was seemingly against us. This seemed like an unjust or unfair punishment. And for lots of reasons it was. But Ron galvanised the team around that. And so we became determined off the back of it together. We had a shared cause to fight for. And coming out of that period of time, we did fight together. It brought us together. It drew the entire organisation together with something, a common goal, with a common cause, a common fight. We were taking on the world because the world was having a go at us. The world was fighting against us and we were going to defend ourselves. And the way we were going to do that was being the best we could be. And now as 2007 played out, and particularly into 2008, of course, 2008 was where we delivered that championship for Lewis. A huge part of that was because we had re-galvanised our team. Fernando Alonso, of course, left. Lewis Hamilton stayed. We got a new driver on board. We reshaped the team. We reorganised the team. And we'd been through something traumatic together as a team. We used that to bond to each other. We used that as a motivating force 
to push forward and go that one step further in the following year. And it's exactly what happened. I think what I've just described there with Ron is a perfect example of how leaders, even great leaders, don't have it all. And even on top of that, they don't have it all all of the time. Leaders don't have to be leaders all of the time. Some people are not cut out to be leaders. Some people don't want to be leaders. Some people need other people to lead them. I'm sure my wife, Claire, won't mind me saying this. My wife is an incredible leader of people. I have sat in this house over the lockdown periods when everyone's been working at home, listening to her on conference calls during her working day, leading her team of people in the most brilliant and inspirational way. She practices empathy. She looks after those people. She's thoughtful. She's there for them. She's not there to take credit for anything that's been successful. She gives that credit to the people in her team. She teaches them. She takes time out of her day to teach them how to do the things that she needs them to do. Rather than just saying, I want you to do it like this. She tells them what she needs, and then she guides them to figure it out herself. And I've sat there and I've been in awe of the way she's led people. But Claire is also the sort of person that could never run a company. She'd openly admit that because she needs leadership herself from that perspective. She's a brilliant leader of people, but she's not a brilliant leader of an organisation. She needs somebody to tell her what they want her to do, and then she'll go and figure out a way of doing it. So. She's a great leader in some aspects, but perhaps not in others. And I think that is exactly what everybody is. The fact, the reason that Claire and I work so well together is because I guess we complement each other's weaknesses. In a relationship sense, I lead her on occasions where she perhaps isn't so strong. And she does the same for me on many other occasions. That's why we work. So leadership is something that is not just a business thing. It's not just a sports team thing. It's something that happens every day, something that we need every day. Whether we recognise it or not, we're always looking for leadership. And it might just be from the people around us. Our children are looking for leadership from us. There's a fine balance as a parent to telling your kids what to do and telling them what you need to happen and let them figure out how to do it. That helps to encourage leadership. Give them the responsibility on occasions and let them figure it out. Let them fail. Because from those failures, of course, they will learn how to do it better next time. Leadership can start right from day one at home, at school. Certainly we can do better in terms of our organisations. When I think of the, the best leaders in Formula One, I've mentioned a few. David Coulthard, Lewis Hamilton, Kimi Raikkonen was an incredible leader in some aspects and a terrible leader in others. I would never ask Kimi Raikkonen to lead a team of people specifically, but the way he led by example in the car, the way he conducted his work at the racetrack was inspirational. That's exactly what a leader needs to be. Our little crew of people would have done anything for Kimi, and I know for a fact that back then he would have done anything for us too. That's how you build a great team. Because he was such an inspirational character, because there was never any doubt that he wouldn't give 100%. He would give everything if we delivered him a car. Because we knew that, we also 
100% gave it all when we were putting that car together, when we were making it go as quickly as possible. It was reciprocated. Leading by example is one of the strongest character traits that we can all have. So as we've gone through our careers or continue to go through our careers, we are shaped by the people that lead us. That is literally our only experience of leadership in many cases. And I have had a variety of people show me good and bad ways to lead. And I take stuff from both of those. That's how we all learn through life. We learn more from the things that don't work as much as we do from the things that do work. You've got to take the nuggets of information from each of those all the way up. If I think back to the way that Ron handled the Spygate affair, internally at least, I took that as a hugely inspirational way of leading a team. Taking some massive adverse conditions that we all faced and using that to turn us all back against it, but in the same direction. Leading through adversity is one of the toughest things. There's not really much in the way of training for that. In fact, what the single hardest day of my career as a leader was after my Formula One days. I actually went to lead a team. I ran a huge team at uh, the original Formula Two championship, which was, I was running a team of about 35 people. All of the mechanics running the cars in this, form, in this centrally run Formula Two championship. My role was no longer getting my hands dirty at this point. I was managing those people in exactly the way I've described earlier. And one of my single biggest challenges, the toughest day of probably my whole career, was when at Brands Hatch, Henry Surtees got into one of our cars. I spoke to him just before the, the race happened. I had a conversation with him and he never came back. He had a big accident. He was hit by a loose tyre, wheel and tyre, bouncing across the racetrack and he died on that day. Now, the toughest part of my leadership role in that particular moment was helping the 35 people that I was in charge of, the other mechanics around that organisation who had just lost a friend, had just lost the guy that they were strapping into that car, the guy who they worked with every single week, every race weekend. In those moments, my role became nothing about being a race mechanic, nothing at all about even racing. It was solely about looking after people, finding out what they needed, practicing empathy, showing love and support and giving them whatever they needed, whether it was time off. And that had to be done on an individual basis. There was no way I could just go to 35 people and say, right, this has just happened. It's awful. It's terrible. It's tragic. This is the solution. I had to go to every one of those 35 people and find out what the solution might be for them to ease the pain, to get them through this incredibly tough period of time. But at the same time, I had nobody doing that for me. There was nobody above me practicing those same levels of empathy, giving that same level of support. It was a really tough period of my life, but also a period that undoubtedly shaped the future leader that I've become today. Because I learned so much about treating people on an individual basis during that period of time. I learned so much about understanding what people need and the fact that the only way you can understand what people need is by actually spending time with them and talking to them, getting to the bottom of it, having a conversation, treating every individual 
as just that, as an individual, and realizing that no one fit, one size fits all solution can possibly cover everybody in that type of, of situation. But it's not even just in moments like that. Treating people as individuals is the key to good leadership. If you're running a team, if you're part of a team, it's no good trying to lump everybody in with that team banner and saying, here's the solution to the team. And that goes all the way back to those very first days, my days at McLaren, when that's exactly how the leadership operated. These are the rules, everybody in this team, you must follow these rules, you must do these things this way, and if you don't, you've failed, you're in trouble. There will be consequences. That doesn't work in a society where thinking has changed. I said before, fashion changes, design ideas change, and if people can't change themselves to adapt to these new ways of thinking, you'll fail. If an aerodynamicist in Formula One still thinks like a 1970s aerodynamicist, you've got no chance, have you? You're not going to work. You're not going to succeed in modern Formula One because we've learned so much more about aerodynamics. We understand so much more detail about how the air flows around a car and how we can manipulate it using wings and winglets and floors and diffusers to generate downforce and make the car go faster around a racetrack. Back in the 70s, we didn't have half of that level of understanding. And it's absolutely no different when it comes to thinking about team culture and leadership. Times have moved on. Understanding of what we need to get from people, how we get the best out of people has changed because there's been a huge amount of research and study gone into it. It would be foolish to ignore all of that. And those people who still think like a 1970s aerodynamicist, or those people who still think like a team manager from the early 2000s, they no longer have a place in modern thinking. They will not succeed because now we're operating in a very different way where this team that's built of individuals and an organisation that recognises that, that every one of those individuals has individual strengths and weaknesses and needs different things to get the best out of them, that is how you form great leadership and that is how you form a great organisation. So here we are, Tuesday evening, the night before this podcast goes live early on Wednesday morning. And once again, I'm in another hotel room looking back at the episode that you've just listened to this week around leadership. And I thought that it would be remiss of me not to include one or two other names from inside the world of Formula One. There are so many people worthy of mention, but one or two that you may well have heard of that I thought we should include. Toto Wolff has to be right up there as the very top of that list of modern thinkers when it comes to modern leadership, certainly within our world of F1, but actually outside of that too. He's a man who openly admits he's not necessarily responsible for the designing and manufacture of F1's best engine over the past seven or eight years. He's not responsible for the efficient and stable aero platform that that car has enjoyed during that time. He's also not responsible for the way that car's been driven in some of the most awe-inspiring ways, some of the ways that have entertained us as, as fans during this recent period in Formula One's history. But he is responsible for putting the people who are responsible for those things in place. He's built that team into what it is by selecting and picking and growing and nurturing the people that now form the basis of that organisation. And when he got those people in the right places, 
He built an environment in which those people could then thrive. And that environment might look slightly different for one person in that team the way it might look for another because he understands that everybody in that organisation might need slightly different things to be able to get the best from them. He's put those things in place. He's built a, a culture where people feel free and empowered within that team, free to put their own ideas and suggestions forward, even if it may well fall well outside of their own job remit. No matter who you are in that team, you have the confidence, if you've got an idea that might lead to some kind of success, to put your hand up and speak up because there is no blame culture. There is no fear of failure that so many other organisations suffer from. Toto is a brilliant man who's reshaped this idea of modern leadership, particularly inside the world of Formula One, and has even inspired other leaders at other teams to go about their business differently. Another man definitely worthy of, of mention here, Jost Capito, the guy who's now CEO at the Williams team, but before that spent a short spell at the McLaren organisation. Now I know that when Jost came into McLaren in a very senior role, he didn't turn up wearing his suit and disappear off to his big fancy office on his first few days at work. On his first few days and weeks at work, he went down to the McLaren clothing department and got himself fitted out for a set of McLaren team base kit, the kit, the team kit that people wear on the shop floor inside that factory. That's not something that the management at McLaren ever or have ever done before. He put on that uniform and spent the first few weeks of his tenure there working on the shop floor in departments like the carbon shop, like the R&D department, in the race team, in the test team, in car build. He spent time learning about those roles. He spent time getting to know the people in those roles, getting to know the people that he was now embarking on this new project to lead. What a brilliant, inspirational way to get people on your side. Now, I know that his time at the team was cut short for various reasons, but the effect, the impact that he left behind in that very short period on the people that he touched at McLaren was significant. He left a ray of hope when he came into the team. People looked up to him as a potential glimmer, a little pot of gold at the end of a rainbow that they've been searching for for so long off the back of a really difficult period. That is what a great leader can bring to a team. Brilliant stuff. Andreas Seidel, now at McLaren, has also come in and introduced many of the similar kind of ideas that Toto Wolff has introduced at the Mercedes team. Introducing this idea of empowerment. Introducing modern thinking to high-performance cultures. Something that the team simply hasn't had in the same way for many, many years on a consistent basis. They've had it in spells and then it may have disappeared again. Now they've got it back with Andreas Seidel and he's building for a long-term future. His goals are much longer term than the team has had in previous eras, where a short-term success might keep shareholders happy, might keep management happy. But it's long-term success is the ultimate goal if you want your company to succeed. These infinite goals that I talked about earlier on where 
building an organization, building an environment that can sustain success has to be the ultimate achievement. McLaren are now working towards that and it's great to watch. The people in the team are re-inspired, re-ignited in terms of passion to all pull together for that shared goal again. It's great. Modern thinking around teamwork and around leadership and around high performance culture is changing at such a rapid pace, but Formula One is doing great things right now in terms of accelerating that development. There are so many organizations and individuals who still haven't found ways to buy into this idea that thinking has changed and therefore we need to adapt our own thinking to make the most of that. We've got new information, so let's act upon it to be better in the future. I wanted to leave you today, as I promised right at the beginning, with one or two of your messages because I do this podcast to help people. That's the simple reason behind it. I have a collection of stories from my time in the sport that until recently I thought were just that. They were throwaway stories of a bygone era that was brilliant at times, it was crazy and fun at times, but I didn't think it went much further than that. What I've realised recently is that Formula One as an industry has so much to offer the wider world and actually I think that's one of Formula One's biggest failures in recent times is that we don't shout about these things enough. And the stories that I'm now recalling in these podcasts are seemingly having a wonderful effect on a lot of people and that makes me absolutely very happy. I wanted to read a couple of them out. Tyler on Instagram messaged me this week saying, Hey Mark, I just wanted to say that I'm really enjoying the podcast and it's helping me to think about life in a different way. Keep up the good work. What a lovely, lovely message. I got this one from Bernardo who says, Hi Mark, I work in a family business that sells luxury watches and jewellery in Portugal. I've listened to every podcast and have shared it with many colleagues and superiors in the company. I've used many of the teachings for my personal life and prepared to return to work when the, when the isolation is over. Thank you very much for all of these teachings. Well, thank you, Bernardo, for taking the time to write a wonderful message like that. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, and Roga says, I love the references to being flexible in your relationships. This is off the back of last week's episode. And the story about the McLaren fuel nozzle trick was absolutely brilliant. Um, lots of you saying you liked that little story about the McLaren fuel refueling nozzle from pit stops. I particularly liked that one because it was such a top secret little trick, little hack that gained us something small but significant. And we kept it secret for so long. It was thinking outside the box. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please go back and listen to last week's episode and all will become clear. But I've received so many messages this week. This week I received a page-long email from a young lad who's still at school who actually brought me to tears because he told me in a brilliantly eloquent way that this podcast has transformed his passion for Formula One into a passion for life which is something that he'd been missing for some time after a really difficult spell in his own life. And listening to this podcast has helped him to reimagine or re-understand what his life could do, what, he, what potential he has by taking some of these lessons from Formula One, something that he loves and applying them to his every single day. It inspired me to do more. It did bring me to tears. And I spent a lot of time writing back to him because I appreciate 
all of your comments and all of your messages, letters, emails, in whatever form they come, I appreciate them all. So thank you very much. Please don't stop doing that. Keep them coming. I would love it if you could rate and review the podcast in whatever podcast store you're listening to this. Drop me a message on YouTube if you're watching it or through any of my social media channels. I'm at F1 Elvis. Wherever you want to get me, please do reach out. I will promise I will write back to you wherever I can. Another big thank you to Omologato. I didn't reach out to Omologato. They reached out to me off the back of hearing the first 10 minutes of the first episode of this podcast. And within 10 minutes, they had realised that the two were perfectly aligned. Their business and the messages coming out of the podcast were so perfectly aligned, were so perfectly matched to each other that they just had to be a part of it. And as soon as they got in touch with me, I couldn't have agreed more. Not because of any financial exchange, but because I personally 100% believe in what Omologato watches are trying to do to disrupt an industry, an industry that is so much more established and bigger than they are. They're a small fish in a big pond, but they're making big waves. And if you haven't heard of them yet, I encourage you to go and check them out at omelagatowatches.com. You will hear of them very soon, and I think you'll like what you see. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a wonderful week, and I'll see you again very soon. Ta-da.